District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. I'm finally able to dedicate sufficient time to discuss the North Atlantic right whale, what is actually endangering it, who is responsible for its demise, whether or not endangered protections that have been awarded to it along with marine mammal life protections, are they having any effect as you put more protections on it, and what actual threats are posed onto the whale in question. What is actually threatening it? Could it potentially be offshore wind projects? There's a case to be made there. So I'm going to dedicate a good sum of time today, more than I normally do for monologue podcasts, to break down everything. We're going to give both sides of the argument, but I'm pretty strongly impassioned on this as well, much like I am on different issues. But I'm going to explain both sides and why the environmentalists here are actually rather endangering the whales more so than those who they claim are, the lobstermen, recreational boaters, and anglers. They're endangering the whale, and I'm going to make the case as to why that is here on the show today. And if you need a full comprehensive view, I've also supplemented this podcast episode with a town hall column you can find out on the website today about how radical environmentalist preservationists are the ones that are endangering the whale more than fishermen and lobstermen are. Let's dive deep into what is actually affecting the right whale status on the East Coast today. Radical environmentalists are further endangering the North Atlantic right whale. That may be a very charged statement, but I'm going to be making it throughout my assessment of the right whale situation, the targets of environmentalists, and how actually further placing protections on the whale, which is already protected by two laws, two very important environmental laws, the Endangered Species Act and also the Marine Mammal Life Protection Act, if I'm remembering that correctly. But it's also regulated and off limits because of like a mammalian equivalent to, and I will link to both of those laws if you're interested in the show notes. But the whale is getting further protections, but its status is not improving. And yet, radical environmentalists are blaming lobstermen, They're blaming recreational boaters and anglers and commuters for imperiling the whale further. Let's start with the lobster situation. The Monterey Bay Aquarium, which has no jurisdiction over the East Coast, is somehow knowledgeable about the lobster fishery in New England and has determined that American lobster belongs on their red list of food to avoid. It claims that the East Coast fishery, quote, poses a risk to overfished or at-risk species, specifically the North Atlantic right whale, and added that gear entanglement is, quote, the leading cause of serious injury and death to the North Atlantic right whales. But when you actually read information from the lobster industry, they actually dispute those claims from the watch list, seafood's watch list. And Here's what I mean by that. You go to a website and I want to encourage you to check out right whale and mainlobster.com. This is from the Maine Lobstermen Association. This is a handy 
page explainer about how the lobster industry, which supports 4,500 jobs and pumps back over a billion dollars annually into the economy, what their actual involvement is in protecting the right whale. You read throughout this document that they've practiced sustainability measures for over 150 years, and they want to protect the health of the lobster stock as well as treating the entire marine environment with respect and care. You talk to any conservation stakeholder, you talk to ranchers, farmers, lobstermen, any interest out there onshore and offshore, do you really think they want to destroy the fishery from which they take or the fishery from which they recreate? You talk to the majority of stakeholders and they tell you no. You have to live on another planet, essentially, to think these people would be so destructive with the fishery that they fish in and that they make livelihoods from. It, it's bizarre. Nobody really subscribes to that notion of taking more than your lot these days, except for poachers. Poachers are not conservationists. But if they were not cautious and judicious about their work, they wouldn't have an industry. That is the same here with the lobster industry. And the website put out by the association, compiled by the association, says they recognize the precarious situation of the North Atlantic right whale. And since the 1990s, fishermen have been taking proactive steps to ensure that fisheries like it and the whale can coexist. Do you really think that they wouldn't want to have coexistence? You should have coexistence, not a preference for the whale over the lobstermen. And when these radical preservationists who masquerade as conservationists step into the equation and say, we're going to be advocating on behalf of the whale, the whale's behest, you have to treat that gesture with a lot of skepticism because they come in like vultures and they interrupt harmonious relationships between industry players and the species that they want to conserve. There's a lot of harmony achieved. It's not perfect ever. But it's harmonious, true conservation practices are at hand, it's rooted in science, and then these people come in and they disrupt cohesiveness in these critical areas and disrupt conservation further, just to simply make a quick buck, alarm about everything, and then nothing changes, and actually the whale situation in this case worsens. And you talk to and read anything coming out from lobstermen in the industry, they have pointed out because of their measures that they've taken to protect the right whale, that the right whale population has increased 53% since 1990. There's also been a 90% decrease or reduction in lobster gear entanglements since safety measures were adopted in 2009. And they also point out that 0% of right whale deaths or serious injuries have ever been attributed to Maine lobster gear. And they say that they've taken four particular steps to implement changes to prevent conflicts between whales and their gear and the individual lobstermen. So they've done measures to reduce rope, making gear safer for right whales, enhancing traceability, innovating new solutions. And a great column I want to point you to in the Bangor Daily News from a former lawmaker in Maine. And this lady talked about summing up the problem here with prioritizing the whales, taking lobstermen out of the equation, what it would do to the region, economically speaking, environmentally speaking. And she basically says that displacement of lobster from the fishery would have ruinous effects in the region, in the country, and in conservation altogether. 
She writes, in the end, targeting and penalizing 4,500 lobstermen and women and the thousands of other small businesses in Maine benefiting from the lobster fishery will hurt those businesses, families, communities, and the economy of Maine, but not likely improve the outlook for the North Atlantic right whale. If you want to support the lobstermen's cause, check out the Maine Lobstermen's Association. That's a great resource. They have a GoFundMe because they are suing the federal government because there have been, similarly with this red listing, there's also court decisions that have been handed down for restricting access to this fishery in terms of gear and other things. And now we're going to hop into the other component involving right whales with these new proposed changes to marine vessel speed requirements and length requirements as it regards the North Atlantic right whale. And the particular rule change that we would see is on the federal register currently as amendments to the North Atlantic right whale vessel strike reduction rule. And top line items, there are four changes that would come. And then you you need to read the federal register for yourself. This is from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, along with Another agency, the National Marine Fisheries Service, which I believe is under the Commerce Department. So they want to propose changes to the vessel speed regulations to further reduce the likelihood of mortalities and serious injuries to endangered right whales from vessel collisions, which they claim is a leading cause of the species decline and a primary factor in an ongoing unusual mortality event. There are four stipulations to this amended rule. It would modify the spatial and temporal boundaries of current speed restriction areas referred to as seasonal management areas to include most vessels greater than or equal to 35 feet and less than 65 feet in the length and the class size subject to speed restriction. Three, create a dynamic speed zone framework to implement mandatory speed restrictions when whales are known to be present outside active SMAs. And four, update the speeds rule safety deviation provision. Changes to the speed regulations are proposed to reduce vessel strike risk based on Coastwide collision mortality risk assessment and updated information on rail distribution, vessel traffic patterns, and vessel strike mortality and serious injury events. Changes to the existing vessel speed regulation are essential to stabilize the ongoing right whale population decline and prevent the species extinction. However, recreational fishing and boating interests have been very disappointed with the rollout of this rule. They felt sidelined, they have felt that they were not consulted. And here is what a coalition letter encompassing various different groups. So a reading of the groups that have expressed opposition to this proposed rule change include the Coastal Conservation Association, International Game and Fish Association, American Sport Fishing Association, Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, Center for Sport Fishing Policy, Boat U.S., Bonefish and Tarpon Trust, Guy Harvey Ocean Foundation, and the National Marine Manufacturers Association. And they have a letter to the NOAA Fisheries assistant administrator raising concerns about this vessel speed regulation rule that has been put out there. So they say that given the substantial impact of the proposed rule to amend the vessel speed regulations, the rush timeline and lack of engagement, we urge the national Marine Fisheries service to not proceed with this rule until additional analysis on the issues expressed in this letter can be conducted and potential new alternatives developed. At a minimum, an extension of the comment period of at least 30 days is needed to allow stakeholders to properly respond to the request for comment. This is similarly an action that was when they changed the rule about future openings to new hunting and fishing opportunities on fish and wildlife service lands. 
This is a very similar parallel situation, albeit in a slightly different area, now affecting public waters access. And the letter ultimately sums it like this, their, their contention with changing the mandatory speed restrictions to include vessels ranging from 35 to 65 feet. They say that uh, raising this criteria and also significantly broadening seasonal speed restriction zones would impact thousands of recreational vessels. And they write very sternly that many boaters and fishermen ultimately will forgo boating and fishing trips altogether due to the time, cost, and safety burdens imposed by the rule. This in turn will negatively impact local marinas, tackle shops, and local businesses that are dependent on the blue economy, which is the recreational boating and fishing economy. That's a term that they use. Therefore, it is vitally important that the rule minimize impacts to boating and fishing as much as possible while maintaining a reasonable probability of achieving conservation goals. So if you have stakeholders that are severely blindsided by this rule, they were not given a heads up and that the administration and the sub agencies are relying on emotion rather than science, not consulting stakeholders. They're more so being guided by special interests that should and, and further exploiting the whale, both in the lobster circumstance and also in this case, it raises a lot of questions that are these stakeholders truly at odds with the whale's interests. And I'm led to believe no. I also want to point you to, while we are on the subject of vessel rule changes, I was reading on the Cape Cod Times and also the National Law Review that if these restrictions were to be put into place, so they impose a restriction on vessels between 35 and 65 feet during you know, times when people go offshore fishing, when people do commutes. Uh, through New England, particularly to Martha's Vineyard and to Falmouth and Boston. And this will not only impact recreational stuff, but also transportation of people who have to go to different places in New England, in Massachusetts in particular. Many local news outlets have pointed out that this would actually not only harm the whale, but it would impact residents in the region too. And I'm reading from now the National Law Review in a piece entitled the 350 North Atlantic right whales deserve our protection, but so do the year round residents of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. They argue that when they change, if this rule goes into effect, banning fast ferries to Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket between November 1st and May 30th, and go to the federal registrar to see which seasons and what restrictions will be put into effect. If this rule proceeds, there are like five different regions, new restrictions, but with respect to new England, it's going to put restrictions between November 1st and May 30th. They argue and point out that this will turn a two hour round trip for year round residents and essential workers into a six round, six hour round trip that will be devastating for Islanders. If it was the only way to save the whales, this monumental burden would be worth it. But the general manager of the steamship authority says that in almost a quarter of a century of a half a million fast ferry trips to both islands, no one has ever seen a right whale in the area that would be affected. Why are they? creating rules or doing rulemaking where the whales are not known to be? That's another question. But interestingly, in this article, they said that there's actually a very feasible way without displacing anglers, boaters, and lobstermen. You could use technology. Everyone talks about technology. Why not use it to help improve the right whale's plight if they were ever to be found navigating and migrating through, let's say, New England in this particular, like Hyannis and Martha's Vineyard, et cetera. But popular science is that they've done like an assessment on 
using buoy-enabled microphones developed by One Oceanic Institute and Cornell University to detect and avoid whales in shipping channels, and it worked for the sperm whale. Why can't similar technology be used and implemented to track the right whale? So in the event that vessels encounter the right whales, they can change course, change their direction, instead of completely displacing people from there, create no-go zones for recreational boaters and anglers and transport industries. This is a lot better. Like there are solutions to protect the whale. I've made the case here, my analysis here, that obviously lobstermen and recreational boaters and anglers are not the enemies to the right whale. And that actually environmentalists meddling in here further are the true enemies to the whale. These same radical preservationists turn a blind eye to actually something that can pose a true threat to the North Atlantic right whale. And that is offshore wind turbines. And I know some of you listening may disagree with my assessment of wind. You may think I'm crazy with respect to the wind energy viability. I have concerns about offshore wind in particular here in Virginia. And I've talked about the Coastal Virginia Offshore Wind Project at length here and in columns at Town Hall. Because of just the scalability of the project, it costs a lot of money, $10 billion worth nearly. It's going to be 176 turbines. It's going to take a lot to construct them. And the wind source is not reliable. It's not a 24-hour supportive baseload. It goes whenever the wind blows. It's intermittent. It's not reliable. And we're also in the path of hurricanes. The installation of these turbines, with discussion I've seen from scientists, but it's been buried a lot, conveniently, of course. The right whales migrate through Virginia's coastline, offshore in Virginia. And the installation of these turbines can actually impede their migration routes and also cause a lot of complications with sonar. As you guys know, whales communicate by sound. Uh, Sonar activity and wind technologies are known to produce a sonar. Not only onshore, that is destructive to people's hearings and causes problems, but also to marine life, too, when you install them offshore. And so wind energy, I think, can pro can pose a huge problem to the endangered right whale. And that is why the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow that I routinely work with has put a lawsuit to save the right whale from environmentalists who want to exploit it and actually not do anything and further disrupt conservation practices and just really, and and make a quick buck. You guys have probably heard me talk about, and we'll get back to the offshore wind discussion momentarily, But this falls into the greater framework, why I think environmentalists are exploiting the whale. Anytime you have a whale with Endangered Species Act protections and other threatened protections placed on it, and there's no improvement to the animal, and these people continue to cry wolf and say it's imperiled, and it is imperiled, don't get me wrong, but they sue to keep the whale in this perpetual status and no man's land. They keep them stuck through lawsuits and their status doesn't improve, it actually worsens. And then you're taking out people who want to help conserve the whale's status and and improve it and see more numbers. When you sue them and you keep them off of public waters, it puts a complete disruption mechanism out there. And when these people, especially stakeholders, are disillusioned and they're having their livelihoods destroyed, it's going to disincentivize them from wanting to help conserve the whale. So lawsuits, through sue and settle practices, which is an abuse of the Equal Access to Justice Act. 
They do this with grizzly bears and wolves. They're also doing this similarly with right whales too. This creates a conundrum and really, really disrupts conservation. And so the fact that they have been virtually silent on the impact of offshore wind on the impact potentially on right whales is astounding. And if you want to read CFAC's lawsuit, I can read that for you too, but I, I want you guys to read it for yourself in the show notes. And I want to point out briefly about the right whale with respect to Virginia. So the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management is tasked with putting out studies and analysis on different projects in terms of highly scalable projects, wind turbines that are installed offshore in particular. And so they have a section in their report about offshore wind. It's called Appendix R, Threatened and Endangered Species Review, but it's just a cover letter. And I will link to the show notes from Dominion Energy. And it says proprietary and confidential business information exempt from public disclosure. So we are not being told what this potential impact from offshore wind will have on these endangered whales, which do migrate through coastal Virginia. Similarly, there was a report commissioned by the same agency, the BOEM, in 2018. It was supposed to be, I think initially 2015, supposed to be published remarks and findings by, I think it was fall of 2018, on whale migration patterns, things of that sort. And that, those findings have not been published yet. So it leads me to scratch my head as to why are they concealing this information? Is it very damaging? The potential environmental impact to right whales? It leads me to believe that that would be the case. And if you want to learn more about offshore wind and its impact on whales, there's a great column at Town Hall from an individual with the Heartland Institute, which joined CFACT in filing this lawsuit to protect the right whale under the caveat of Dominion Energy not being honest about their assessment. This Appendix R, not going into detail than more than the cover letter that they provide. Um, there's also that study from Boehm I just alluded to. They haven't published findings on whale migration in Virginia. And so you have to call into question, why are they so hesitant to tell us the impact of offshore wind on North Atlantic right whales? But they're so gung-ho about targeting lobstermen who have no impact with respect to gear entanglements, and then also impacting recreational boaters and anglers who usually sit at the table and are cooperative, but are not briefed on rules changes, especially rules changes that'll displace their participants from public waters access, giving priority to the whale over everyone else rather than achieving kind of a cohesiveness and a, a balance, a true conservation balance, balance use, which we find often in public lands discussions as well. The cause of saving the right whale will be undermined if radical environmentalists continue to displace conservation stakeholders from the equation. And when they also ignore clean energy projects that they love having a greater toll than the people they accuse of having an impact on it. So it's, it's a game of projection, like all things. And I have an explainer at town hall today. I hope you check it out. It's a very, very misguided rule. I hope to goodness a lot of public comments will be put here. Pressure will be placed in the administration, maybe backed by lawsuits to sue them to stop this rule from going into effect. It's going to have so many consequences. Let me know what you think about the right whale situation. I would love your feedback. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player. We largely circulate on Apple, Spotify, and countless others, but those are our two 
big podcast platforms we want to push. Make sure you're subscribed there, especially on Apple. If you like the podcast a lot, go leave us some reviews. We'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys. Moreover, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a little bit on YouTube. We don't populate there, but connect with us on social media. Find me personally on social media with blue check marks. Super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode.